Well, it's good to be together. I know I'm not uh, Tom Schreiner. That was a, a treat last week to have him. But we're going to be back in Philippians, and we're almost done. We have a, about three more weeks in Philippians, and then I'll be starting a series on Exodus. And uh, we're going to take about a year to move through Exodus, which is pretty quick, actually. Um, and so it'll be more big picture view, uh, probably a chapter a week. Um, there'll be a couple of times where I'll stop and we'll go a little deeper, but yeah, that's what's coming up. And then John after that, and that'll take us to about 2025. <laughs> Is that a joke? It's good to plan ahead. Um, oh, I had a story, but I'll, there's no time. Philippians 4, 8, 9, think and live like Christ. Here's the big idea. The church is called to think and live like Christ by the power of Christ in them. Who's ever heard of the legend of handsome Nate Perkins? I've talked about handsome Nate here, I think, once before. So when I was in seminary in Boston, I got involved in the Boston Rescue Mission. And this was a homeless shelter slash drug rehab center in the heart of Boston. And for three years, I was kind of like a chaplain. And so I would go, I would take the, the train into the city uh, every week to do Bible study. And then on the weekends, I would come in and disciple men. And I lived there for a summer. So I lived on the top floor with about 40, 50 men, all of them out of prison, uh, all of them really <laughs> interesting rap sheets and records. And uh, I'm this young guy in my 20s. And uh, I think I shared this, sleeping there was just horrific because of the snoring. It was unbelievable. Matt, you came and visited. You, you met Handsome Nate, the legend. Yeah, Matt came up to Boston when I was a student in Gordon-Conwell, and, and I gave him a tour, and, and he got to meet Handsome, the Hulk. So let me tell you about Handsome Nate Perkins. Handsome Nate, is it okay if I call him that? I'm going to, I don't care. Uh, that was what he was known as, is Handsome Nate Perkins. And if you called him anything else, good luck. I uh, hope you're fast. Handsome Nate, uh, I was doing a Bible study on a Tuesday night. I came in, and what I would do is I would go up to the women's floor. I'd knock on the door. I'd never go in, but I'd say, hey, ladies, Bible study tonight, uh, 7 o'clock. Everyone's invited. Please come down at the chapel floor. And then I'd go up to the top floor where the men were. I'd go inside. I'd walk around. Hey, guys, tonight, Bible study. We're going through Mark, whatever I was teaching uh, during that season. And I'd always look for new guys. And I'm trying to make this brief. And I'll never forget this. I, I walk around the corner, and I see a monster. Who's ever seen a monster in real life? This guy is sitting down on the bottom bunk with his shirt off, and he is just the most jacked dude. That means he's really big and strong I've ever seen. And he's sitting down, and he's probably taller than me sitting down. I'm like, that's just not right. And then he stands up, and he's, what, 6'4", maybe? He's just a big man, just chiseled. I mean, he's like cut out of stone. And he has this like cartoon face, like just square jaw, like you could crack an egg on his face. And maybe I did, I don't know. Um, but I said, hey man, I'm Chris, I'm looking up, and I do Bible study here, I'm, I'm a student at a seminary, I'd love for you to come. Oh yeah, I've heard of you. I'll be there. I'll be there. Get ready for me. What does that mean? I, I didn't know what that meant. And so one of my friends who was a, a fellow church member and a social worker, he'd done Bible study there. His name was Mac Caldwell. And I said, Mac, we got to pray. And I told him, yeah, he's got an interesting story. I'll pray for you. So we prayed. Bible study was a mess. It was chaotic because he kept interrupting and, and trying to challenge me. He was being a jerk. I took him outside and whooped him. No, I didn't. I'm just kidding. Um, 
I'm from East Texas. No, but, you know, God gave me patience and grace, and I was able to answer all his questions. And at the end of the night, he said, hey, I like you, kid. I'll be back. And I was like, oh, so God gave me favor. We developed a great relationship. Well, the summer that I lived there, I, I'd be given tasks. Hey, I need you to go pick up some food at night at this place. And where the, the rescue mission was located was kind of a bar, bad part of town. And so, again, I mean, you know, there's, there's areas in Boston that are dangerous. There's drugs and gangs, and they'd ask me to go. And, you know, at night, I didn't want to go by myself. And so I'd say, hey, Nate, handsome Nate, by the way, will you come with me? And if Nate was with me, I mean, come on, no one's going to mess with us. I was not afraid at all because I later found out he was renowned in the prison system in Boston for being the guy you don't mess with. And he later told me some stories, and I was like, ah. Um, the point is this. I'd be asked to do things, run errands, a little fearful if I knew the area was a bad area, but if Nate was with me, no fear. No fear. I wasn't. Oh, are you looking at me? you got to mess with this guy if you're looking at me. Oh, no, I wasn't looking at you. you know, so he was just, yeah. The, the point is this. I, I love the logic of our passage. Paul essentially says, think godly thoughts, live a godly life. How? Because God is with you. Yes. Okay. Amen. Right? The Lord is with us, which should instill the believer with confidence and peace and rest. I took way too much time on that story. I'm sorry. All right, here's what I want to do, and if you're taking notes, I think this will be a good review for you. I'm going to use uh, alliteration words beginning with R. I think it'll be helpful. So here's what we've seen over the past few weeks. I've been arguing that in Philippians 4, 2 to 9, Paul is providing us with the fruit or evidence of sanctification. Okay, so Essentially, what we have in this section, these are the marks of sanctification, which again, what is sanctification? It is the ongoing work of maturity, growth in Christ-likeness. So let me quickly define some terms by way of review, and then we'll kind of review this section, and then we'll look at our passage. So believers typically talk about salvation on this timeline, okay? So we use a timeline, and we talk about justification, which refers to a past work, sanctification, which is present and ongoing, and then glorification, which is what? It's future, okay? So justification is that legal declaration in the heavenly law courts where God, the Father, says what? Righteous. Those who have trusted in Jesus are declared righteous on the basis of our righteousness, No, on the basis of Christ's righteousness. Again, he lived the perfect life. He obeyed the law fully. He died in our place. We get his righteousness. We get his innocence. Amen? So we're justified. We're declared right before God if we've trusted in Jesus. Those who trust in Jesus are declared righteous because they have received Christ's righteousness. He took our sin. This is called the great exchange, and we get his righteousness. What grace. All right. Sanctification is the ongoing work whereby the Spirit of God is at work through the Word of God, making the people of God more like the Son of God, okay? That's ongoing, it's continuous, we're growing, we're maturing, we're becoming more like Jesus, but it's all, the trajectory is moving towards what? Glorification, and that is future. Glorification refers to what the... the, the perfection of our salvation, that is the goal, the telos, whereby when we see Christ face to face, our sin nature will be eradicated no more. 
we will know Christ fully and will be fully conformed to him and will have resurrection bodies no longer given over to sickness and disease and suffering. Amen? That is glorification. All right. So let's go back to Philippians 4, 2 to 9. These verses that we've looked at for a month now can be distilled down to three things. First, in Philippians 4, 2 and 3, we see, and if you're taking notes, I would just write Philippians 4, 2 to 3, and then maybe a dash. We see that sanctification involves a commitment, here it is, to relational unity and reconciliation. Relational unity and reconciliation. If you're committed to that, that is evidence of sanctification. If you're committed to relational unity and reconciliation in the church, that is evidence of sanctification. The gospel that brings vertical reconciliation also produces horizontal reconciliation. The gospel that brings unity between God and sinful man also brings unity between sinful people. Amen? So in these verses, Paul calls two ladies, Euodia and Syntyche, two ladies in the church, these were believers, to be reconciled and for the church to get involved, the, 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 the verb is actually to help or to aid them in this work of reconciliation. Second, all right, in Philippians 4, 4 to 7, we see that sanctification involves, here's this again, Philippians 4, 4 to 7, dash, rejoicing in the gospel and resting prayerfully in the Lord. Rejoicing in the gospel and resting prayerfully in the Lord. So the believer is called to continually rejoice because of the twin truths that Jesus is Lord and he's coming back. Amen? Why can we rejoice? Even in the face of opposition, why can we rejoice, church? Because Christ is Lord, he's sovereign, and guess what? He's coming back. Amen? That is good news. The believer learns to depend on the Lord more and more as seen and their prayer life. And then finally, our text for today, in Philippians 4, 8, and 9, we see that sanctification, again, Philippians 4, 8, and 9, dash, involves redirecting, redirecting our thoughts and actions toward the things of the Lord. That is the evidence of sanctification. We're redirecting our thoughts and our actions toward the things of the Lord. And that's going to be our focus today. Our sanctification is evidenced by our thoughts and our Actions. So think like Christ and live like Christ. So let me summarize. Our text today, again, and Paul is just so helpful, again, inspired by the Spirit, but the structure here is just so helpful to follow, so easy to follow. Our text contains two commands. How many? Two and then one promise. So two, one. Two commands and one promise. Command one, it is an imperative in the Greek. He's not saying, hey, if you feel like it, he's saying, no, do this. Number one, think about these things. Think about these things. And number two, the second command, practice these things. Think about these things, practice these things. Those are the two commands. And then the promise is this, and the God of peace will be with you. And the God of peace will be with you. So the two commands are found in the present tense in the original Greek, which denotes what kind of action? Ongoing, continuous. So we should think about these things and practice these things. How often? Say it again. Very often. Good. Continuously. Good. Now, again, this must be read in context. In the previous passage, Philippians 4, 4 to 7, Paul exhorts the church to not be anxious about 
anything. We tend toward anxiety when our minds wander away from the promises of God, the character of God, and the glory of God found in the Word of God. Our minds tend toward anxiety when we wander from what? The promises of God, the character of God, and the glory of God seen in the Word of God. I'm so glad we did that song today. That was so good. Christians must continuously redirect and reorient their thoughts around Christ, His work, and His glory by regularly going to the the Word. This is one of the key ways that we make war on our anxiety and worry. Okay. Now, what's remarkable is what comes next. So Paul commands the church to think godly thoughts. Next, he calls them to practice godly living by following his example. And then, and this is next week, in Philippians 4, 10 to 13, he demonstrates this for us by pointing to his own example. Here's the flow. Think godly thoughts. Practice godly living such as you have seen in me, Paul says. And then Paul says, look at my own example, where while being in a situation prone to anxiety, where's Paul as he writes this? Is he on holiday? Is he on vacation? No, he's in prison. He says, again, while being in a situation where one would typically be prone to anxiety, I brought my thoughts in line with God's truth. So three things contained in our text. Number one, thank godly thoughts. Number two, practice godly living. And number three, rest in the promise of God's presence. Number one, thank godly thoughts. Verse eight, finally. Now, this word finally is important. It means that Paul is bringing his argument to a close. He's bringing this section to a close, okay? So finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, here's the command, think about these things. Now, how do we do this? How do we do this? The main verb comes at the end of the list. Paul commands the church to think about these things, namely whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise. So here's the first question. What do these things refer to, and where are they found? Now let's make sure, let's step back. Again, we've got to read in context. Let's make sure that we read these commands, thank godly thoughts, Practice godly living in light of Philippians 1.27 and Philippians 3.20. Philippians 1.27, Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Philippians 3.20, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so heaven's citizens must be marked by heavenly thoughts. Heaven's citizens must be marked by heavenly thoughts. Our thoughts must continually be directed vertically to the Lord in the things of the Lord. It, I, I found this fascinating. I, I looked at every Greek word used. I looked at where else it's used in the New Testament, and I found something really interesting. Okay, So this list of virtues, there's a common denominator. I'm going to come back to it. It's going to be really helpful for a- answering the question, how do we do this? How do we think this way? So I'm going to quickly run through the list. Number one, true. True. Whatever is true. 
We should think about whatever is true. True refers to things that are factual, those things that correspond to reality. This word true appears in Revelation 21.5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Amen. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Boom! Why are they trustworthy and true? Because they came from the mouth of the Lord. This word true often refers to biblical truth, namely the word of God. So think on God's truth. Honorable. Honorable. Again, I'm going to take them one at a time. Honorable refers to that which is holy, worthy, and above reproach. This word is also used to describe servants or deacons in 1 Peter 3. Sorry, 1 Timothy 3. And Fee writes, honorable, and this is really helpful. He's going back to the, the Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. He says, honorable occurs in Proverbs 8, 6, also in conjunction with truth and righteousness as characteristic of what wisdom has to say. So again, God's word is worthy or holy or honorable. Okay, so God's word is true. God's word is honorable. Again, I'm kind of giving you the answer. What's the common denominator? How are these words used? These adjectives typically describe what so far? The the word. Think on the, oh man, you guys, just wait. Just. Just refers to that which is right, upright, and in accordance with God's holy standards. It's used of the scriptures and the judgments of Christ. I'm not, I don't have time to read these, but write them down. Romans 7.12 and John 5.30. Again, there, just refers to the word of God, the word of Christ. His word is just. It's right. It's right. If you want to know what's right, where should you go? Where? Say it with me. The word. Okay. Pure. Oh, pure refers to that which is without moral defect or blemish. It's used in 1 Peter 3.2 to describe holy living. Now, in James 3.12, James 3.12, it's used to describe God's wisdom from above. His divine revelation, which is his what? It's his word. His word is pure. Oh, lovely. Oh, man, this is so good. Lovely refers to that which is what? Delightful. That which causes pleasure. That which is pleasing. I think of Psalm 119. Time and time again, the psalmist exclaims that his delight is found in what? The word of God. Psalm 119, 92. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Psalm 119, 174, I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my, it's my delight. Commendable. Commendable refers to that which is worthy of praise and approval. Matthew Harmon notes, this word often referred to speech that demonstrated cautious reserve or was carefully chosen out of respect for someone So again, think before you speak, right? Think before you speak. We must make sure that what we're speaking, what? What's the correlation here? Typically what we say, we were what? We're thinking. So if we want to speak wisely, we need to be thinking about wisdom, which is found where? In the Word of God. 
in the Word of God. So Paul, and this is helpful for me when I was studying this this week, Paul is not referring to mere abstract thought here in verse 8, right? Okay, whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy, thing. What, okay, what does that mean? Well, these adjectives are consistently used to describe that which is found in the Word. So we should be thinking on the, on the Word. So again, Paul is not referring to mere abstract thoughts here. There is a clear, this is so helpful, there is a clear correlation between our thoughts and our words and actions. As one thinks, so one speaks and lives. Does that make sense? As one thinks, so one speaks and lives. So this needs to be informed by this, so we're living and speaking this. Does that make sense? We're to think about speech and behavior that aligns with God's word. For this behavior is truly what? Commendable and praiseworthy. So again, think speech and conduct that commends the character of God. Excellence. Excellence denotes outstanding goodness or moral excellence. In 2 Peter 1.3, this word is used to describe God's outstanding moral character. Okay, so excellence is used to describe God's outstanding moral character. Who wants to know God's character? Oh, that was not good. Why did I do that? Such a spaz. Who wants to know God's character? Where do we go to find God's character? Oh, man. Our thoughts should be fixated on the matchless character of God, his goodness, which is found in his word. Now, lastly, the word translated as worthy of praise is similar in meaning to commendable. Now, this word, it's one word, worthy of praise, typically has who as its object in Scripture? God, right? So praise is to be directed toward who? God. Paul is calling the church to think on God, the one who is worthy of praise and honor. So again, where are these things found? How do we do this? How do we think on these things? This, so simply, is a call to think on the Word of God, where we have revealed the Son of God. Church, regularly think on the Scriptures. And we think this way by digging deeper and deeper into the Word of God. We think this way by digging deeper and deeper into the Word of God. We think this way by following the example of the blessed man in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, what? But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. What's he thinking about? What's the blessed man thinking about? What's informing his thoughts? The scriptures, the word of God. So notice the correlation between abstaining from sinful behavior and meditation on the scriptures. So again, we are to thank godly thoughts, and we are to practice godly living. But as one thinks, so he or she what? Does. Again, this is also seen in Psalm 119, verse 11. I have stored up your word in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. So not only, and this is really helpful. Man, this took a lot of time, by the way. I'm not saying pat me on the back. Praise God for this. But this was, as I was saying, like, there are times when I'm, I'm working on a sermon, and I'm just like, I'm in my office. Whoa! Oh, man! Are you kidding me? So again, what was the common denominator? All these words. Used to describe what throughout Scripture? The, the Bible. 
Now catch this. Not only do these words describe a what, the Scriptures, but a who, the one revealed in the Scriptures, Jesus Christ. These same words describe who throughout Scripture? Jesus. Christ is truth. Christ is holy. Christ is righteous. Christ is pure and without blemish. Christ is most lovely. Christ is morally excellent. Christ is praiseworthy. We are to think on who? Jesus. Recall Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 2.16, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. The Holy Spirit, God's indwelling presence, is at work in God's people bringing our minds more and more into conformity to Christ. Here's a quick summary of what we just talked about. The people of God, that's us, church, the people of God are to look to the Word of God so as to dwell more and more on the Son of God. Okay? The people of God, that's why we gather, right? Why do we gather? To fix our eyes on who? Why do we sing what we sing? We sing Scripture. We sing truth. Why do we preach from the Word? Because who is revealed in the Word? Christ. The people of God are to look to the Word of God so as to dwell more and more on the Son of God. Colossians 3, 1-3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Church, we must set our minds on Christ, and we do this by filling our minds with the Word of God. Fill your minds with Scripture. Enough said. I'm not done. Ultimately, Philippians 4, 8, and 9 is a call to make war on our sin by directing our thoughts on the Word of God so that we live godly lives. Again, our actions flow out of our thoughts. Our thoughts inform and inspire our actions. Where are you directing your thoughts? Toward the Lord and His Word or toward the world? Let me ask this question. Do you wish to make war on worry and anxiety? Do you wish to make war on worry and anxiety, then fix your thoughts regularly on the Son of God and the Word of God. Now, as mentioned earlier, the verb to think, think on these things, appears in the present tense. Therefore, it denotes what kind of action? Ongoing. So if we're to continuously think on these things, where do we need to be continuously? In the Word, in the Word. The verb used here is logizomai, logizomai. It means to ponder, to give careful thought to, to let one's mind dwell on. So when Paul says, think on these things, he's saying, let your minds continuously dwell on Christ and his word. Church, we are to give careful thought to the word of God where we find the Son of God. Meditate on Christ and his word continually. Saturate your minds with scripture. Dwell continuously on the word. Amen? Let's get practical. And to me, this is all practical, by the way. I mean, what's the takeaway? Read the Bible. <laughs> Gather with the church to come under the word of God. 
let the word of God inform and affect your thoughts. Because from the mind, what? Flows actions and words. But let's get practical here. Three things, three practice steps. Number one, get in the word on your own. Get in the word on your own, okay? If you don't have a regular Bible reading time, a daily time set aside to open up God's word and say, Father, open my eyes to behold wonderful things in your law, do that today. Guard that time. Number two, get in the word with other believers. Versi just did a four-week class on women discipling women. Man camp was all about men discipling men. We have resources. This is good stuff. We need this. I met with a brother this morning, and I said, hey, what's the importance of the church? Why do we need the church? Because, he said, we need people to help us grow. Amen. So, get in the Word on your own, but also, number two, get in the Word with other Christians. Amen? And number three, get in the Word with God's gathered church. Every Sunday, gather with the body to come under the Word together. So throughout the week, meet with Christians in the Word. Throughout the week, on your own, get in the Word. Every Lord's Day, gather with the church to come under the Word. So your minds are saturated with Scripture. Now, what should motivate us here? When we think this way, it brings honor and glory to God. Because from godly thinking flows godly living. It's true. From godly thinking flows godly living. The logic of this is seen in the promise of the new covenant in Ezekiel 36, 26-27. And I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God's promise to give us new hearts and minds along with the Holy Spirit results in a new way of living. Again, as one thinks, so they live. As one thinks, so they live. You didn't say it with me, so I'm going to say it again. As one thinks, so they live. Good. Stop saying it. Never. All right. What else are we called to in our passage? Number two, practice godly living. These last two points are going to move quick, so just be ready. Verse nine, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Underline those verbs. Man, I found some really cool parallels throughout the New Testament where these same verbs are used, similar contexts. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, here's the second command, what? Not just think these things, but practice. Don't just read the Word, do the Word. Practice these things. Why does Paul begin with our thoughts? Because our actions flow from our our thoughts. As one thinks, so he, he lives. <laughs> From the heart, the mouth speaks. The heart is the wellspring of life. Jesus addresses this in Mark 7, 20-23, and he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, Envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Whose parents growing up say, hey, get your mind right, kid. You better get your mind right, or we're going behind the shed. Anybody? Was that just, get your mind right. <laughs> if one's heart and mind isn't right, 
then it will be seen in his or her words and deeds, right? If your heart and mind isn't right, it's going to be seen in what you speak and how you live. If your heart and mind is right, it's going to be seen in how you speak and how you live. What had the church in Philippi learned, received, and heard, and seen in Paul? What things exactly were they being commanded to practice? The Word of God, biblical teaching, the gospel. What had they heard? What had they received? What had they seen in Paul? They had heard and received the Word, the Word that brings new life, new birth, and inner transformation. There's a parallel to this in Mark 4.20 in the parable of the sower. Jesus declares in Mark 4.20, But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. This is the same word for hearing, akuo in Greek, that Paul uses in Philippians 4.9. It denotes hearing. So this word is so cool. Like, did you guys hear that? The Greek word akuo is way more significant than that. Everybody heard that noise just now, right? Raise your hand if you heard that noise. That's not what it means to hear biblically, okay? What does it mean to hear biblically? It denotes hearing and conforming to, hearing and obeying, hearing in such a way that you're changed and transformed to live differently. It denotes appropriation. Now, the verb received, this is a fun one, paralambano, is also used by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. So again, Paul says, hey, what you've heard, what you've seen, what you've received, what you've learned, the verb received in our passage, also used by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. Listen, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you what? You received. In which you stand. And by which you're being saved. The verb to receive means to accept a particular teaching. It implies faith. Faith. You receive it by what? Faith. What is Paul saying? What has he been saying all along? (laughs) Live in light of the gospel. The gospel they had received by Paul in faith was to affect how they lived. And that's true for us as well. Again, recall Philippians 1.27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the, of the what? Live in a manner worthy of the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, here's the beauty of Philippians. This is why I love this letter so much, so deeply. The beauty of Philippians is that not only does Paul provide instruction. Okay, so everybody say instruction. Everybody say Grace. What grace, what a gift that we get God's word. Are you kidding me? That's incredible. We get his word. We get his truth. We should rejoice over that. But that's not all. He provides examples of this instruction lived out. Everybody say grace. I mean, guys, come on. Like, that's why I love Philippians. It's not do this. That's enough. But, hey, do this, and here's what it looks like. Wow. That's a good teacher, right? That's a good coach. Hey, kid, do that. What does it look like? I don't got time for you. Just do it. <laughs> well, dang it. What do I do? Paul says, do this, and here's what it looks like. Oh. The theme of imitation is found once again in verse 9. Paul invites the church to follow his example. What you've 
learned, what you've received, what you've heard, what you've seen in me. Practice these things. In fact, they, the church in Philippi, and we today have multiple examples of gospel living in this letter. In Christ, in Paul, in Timothy, and what was that guy's name? Paphro, Paphroditus. Friends, what does this amount to? What does it look like? Let me quickly review. Let's start with Paul. We have Paul's singular focus. We've talked about that quite a bit. We might call this focus, if you're taking notes, the glory of Christ through one's life. Paul lived his life for the glory of Christ in all things. That was his singular focus in life or in death. I want Christ to be glorified. Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I live, hey, more ministry for Christ. If I die, I get to be with Christ, the greatest treasure of all. Philippians 3, 10 to 12, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul pursued Christ's likeness both in himself and others for the glory of Christ. Next, we have the example of Jesus. Philippians 2, 5 to 8, Paul says, have this mind among yourselves. Here's what I'm answering. I'm answering the question, again, Paul says, practice these things. What do these things look like? What does it look like to live in light of the gospel? Again, he points back to the examples, himself, Christ, and Timothy and Epaphroditus. Let's just review this quickly. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ served. Christ humbled himself. Christ obeyed the Father. Now, this is what's interesting. Christ, who is truly God, truly God, truly man, fully God, fully man. Do you believe that? Christ, who is truly God, showed us what it means to be truly human. He served. He humbled himself. He obeyed the Father. Amen? Finally, we have the examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus, these two brothers, as seen in Philippians 2, big section, 19 to 30. What did they do? They put the interests of others before themselves, and they gave of themselves for the ministry of the gospel. The verb to practice, practice these things. The verb to practice comes from the Greek word prasso, prasso. And the verb itself is in the present tense. It means to carry out an activity, to do. Again, Christians must be doers of the word. James 1.22. Matthew Harmon notes, by using the verb practice in the present tense, Paul refers to a consistent pattern of behavior that is characteristic of a person's life. Again, this is so important. Remember, we are not saved by our own personal performance. Amen? We're saved by our trust in Christ's performance, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his victorious resurrection. We aren't saved by our performance, but we are saved to perform. We are saved to do. We're not saved by our doing, but we're saved to live differently. Amen? 
<clears throat> you read Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, we're saved by grace through faith, right? Not by works so that no one can boast, but how does it end? What does Paul talk about? These what? These works that were prepared in advance for us, amen? That we're called to walk in. We're not saved by our works. We're saved by his work and our faith in his work, but we are saved to work, to live differently. The gospel provides forgiveness and, what's that T word? Transformation. It's true. Now, if you're reading Philippians, maybe you're like, Paul, we get it. Why does he continue to make the same point over and over? Why does he continue to emphasize gospel living? Because the gospel affects how we live. The gospel affects how we live. It transforms how we live. Those who receive the gospel by faith are transformed to live differently because of the gospel. Simply put, it matters how we live. Here's the practice question. Are you currently practicing, right, prasso, the Christian life? What does this look like? Does your manner of life, dads, think about this. Wives, think about this. Moms, think about this. Husbands, think about this. Young people, think about this. Does your manner of life commend and validate the message you proclaim? Furthermore, what does your life, your words, and your actions reveal about your heart and mind? As one thinks, so they, they live. Lastly, and this is a very short point, but it's so important. This is everything. What grounds are godly thinking and godly living? We're called to what? What does Paul command? Think godly thoughts, live godly lives. Okay, somebody say how. How? Is that a tall order? Yes. In and of ourselves, in our own strength, it's impossible. And that's why this last point is so helpful and such good news. Here's point number three, rest. Rest in the promise of God's presence. Verse nine, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. If it stopped there, we'd be in trouble. But how does it end? And the God of peace will be with you. <sighs> Amen. The God of peace will be with you. This is the key to the two commands from Paul. This is what enables godly thinking and godly living. This is at the heart of sanctification, namely God's indwelling presence. So how are we meant to understand the final promise in our passage? Paul is simply describing and reminding them, the church, of what is true. Those who dwell on the things of God, those who practice the things of God, have the promise of God's presence. He is with his people. Amen? If you go back to the Abrahamic covenant, if you look ahead to glory, what is at the heart of God's promises? What makes them so sweet is we get God. We get to be with him. But guess what, church? That starts now. Amen? If you've trusted in Christ, he is with you now. Now. Not only do we have the promise of God's peace, as we saw two weeks ago in verse 7, but the promise of his presence. And his presence brings what? What does his presence bring? Peace. This harkens back to Matthew 28, 18 to 20. What does Jesus say? Go and make disciples of all nations. Tall order? Yeah. I mean, is that intimidating? It, yes. But what is the promise that grounds the command? And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Yeah. Woo! Does that get you pumped? 
We have the promise of his presence. Paul ends this section on the most encouraging note. He reminds the church of how. Everybody say how. How they're able to think differently and live differently. It's by the presence and power of God. Now, as children, we were asked to do things that were scary at times, right? Think back when you were a kid. Maybe mom and dad asked you to do something, and it's scary. Hey, listen, I need you to go up behind the woodshed and get some wood. Dad, it's cold and it's dark. I don't want to go back there. Will you go with me? Yeah, I'll go with you, son. What happened to the fear? What happened to the worry? It's gone. It's gone. Now, again, maybe seven, eight years old, by yourself, you got to walk 300 yards, go collect some wood at night. You hear the coyotes howling, right? You hear a rustle in the woods. Now, me and Carl, we love that. Come on, bring it, right? But most people, right, I think you and I were shaving. I've never shaved, by the way, so I can't even go there. But most kids in that situation are fearful. But when dad says, hey, I'll go with you, Fear's gone. Fear's gone. It disappears. Where do we find the strength to pursue unity in the church? To rejoice always. To pray in the face of anxiety. To think godly thoughts and live godly lives. It's in the Lord, namely in his powerful presence. He is the God of peace. We can rest in him. He calms and comforts our hearts and minds. Amen? Church, let me end with this. Let's pray that the Word of God, the Bible, the Scriptures, would guide and direct our, our thoughts. And then, like the psalmist in Psalm 1, that we'd be found meditating on God's Word day and night. Let's pray that we would then faithfully practice the Word of God, living out God's truth with God's people for God's glory. And let's pray that we would not look inwardly for the strength to do this, but to the one who is with us, the Lord himself. Do you know the gospel? This is a great passage to use in sharing the gospel. It talks about thinking differently, living differently, and it has the promise of God's presence, the God of peace. Man, and this is, again, I'm paraphrasing Augustine, Man will never rest until he rests in him. Man will never know peace until it knows the God of peace. And guess what? The God of peace has come. He became man. He lived the perfect life. The life we could not live because we're sinners. We owe a debt. I hate debt, by the way, right? It's no fun. But our debt, the debt we owe, we can never pay. But one has paid it for us. We owe God a perfect life, a holy life. We're all sinners. That's bad news, right? When you're in God's debt, when you find yourselves in the hands of an angry God, as Edward said. But the good news is one has paid our debt, Jesus Christ. He lived the perfect life. But because we failed to meet God's holy standard, we deserve wrath. But Jesus went further. He died in our place, amen? He took that wrath, that punishment for us. And then he rose again, proving that his saving work worked, that all his claims are true. And the Bible says, if you trust in Jesus and turn from your sin, you're forgiven, you're saved, you're brought into God's family. Amen? Again, the gospel that I just declared provides both forgiveness and transformation. 
For those who trust in Jesus, guess what? We are called to think differently and live differently, and we can because of God's powerful presence in us, conforming us, making us more like the Son as we all head towards what, friends? Glorification. Let's pray. Father, I've been challenged by this text this week, and I hope that this morning all of us were. The call to think differently, to live differently, can be overwhelming if we don't think about what comes next, if we don't look ahead to the promise that God, the God of peace, will be with us. We thank you, God, that in you and because of you, we can think differently and live differently, that you give us the power and the strength to live as your rescued people. Father, help us to love your word more. Help us to follow the example of the psalmist in Psalm 1, to meditate on it day and night. The psalmist in Psalm 119, to hide it in our hearts so that we won't sin against you. To follow the example of Jesus, who knew the word inside and out, and when temptation came, he was armed and ready to speak your truth. Father, I pray that we would love your word more, that your word would inform and affect our thoughts, that we would look to your word daily on our own, weekly with brothers and sisters in Christ, in every Lord's day, coming under your word to be fed so that we can grow and mature in the faith. And Father, we know that our thoughts affect how we live. And so I pray that because our minds are so filled with the word of God, that we as a church would live differently and speak differently for your glory. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.